My kids are going to be jealous, man. Phil Wickham is the soundtrack of the Stewart House. So uh, thank you, brother, for leading us. Can we just say thank you to Phil again for leading us? And... Hey, I want to say thank you to David, too, and the team for putting this on. Uh, what an amazing, important time for us to gather together. So awesome to be here with you. And uh, if you've got a copy of your scriptures with you, we got to jump right in, folks. We're in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. I want to read to you a big section of scripture uh, to kind of load it into your mind. We'll pray and then jump into what the Lord has for us today. So Ephesians chapter 2. If you don't have a copy of your scriptures, uh, just, just listen. I'll read it out loud. And um, uh, then we'll pray and jump in together. But Ephesians 2 uh, verse 1 begins like this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the flesh, of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming age, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. Therefore, remember that at one time you, Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hand. Remember that you were, at that time, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who's made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, peace to those who were near. And through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers, Aliens, your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom this whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together in the dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And you read chapter four, verse one. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. 
Well, Father, as we take up this subject of what it means to be united in love, I just pray at the outset, let it be. Let us know what it is to be loved by you, and let's take up the high and challenging call of loving each other. Not hypothetically, propositionally loving people, but in a real gritty way, love the people to our left and our right. The world needs to see it, so help us do it. And I want to invite you, if you're willing, to just take a minute and pray. And you ask him. Say, God, please teach us tonight. Uh, And then if you would, please pray for me, that the Lord would use me and I'd be helpful to you. Father, we love you and we trust you. Use this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was right out of college, uh, my family decided to take a vacation in Colorado, where my brother was living at the time. So we flew up there and jumped into his car, threw all our gear in the back, and drove up to this resort. And I remember as we were getting out of the car, I grabbed my bag and was walking through the parking lot, and my mom asked me a question. She said, Ben, is that your underwear on the ground? And I looked and I was like, yes. Odd. Kind of tucked it in and we walked into this hotel. And as soon as we walked into the hotel, the bottom of my bag flipped open like a lid and all my clothes fell out. Remember, I was like, what a cheap bag. So I kind of had to grab all my possessions and wander through the lobby holding them and We went up to the room and you decided, well, that was a weird start, but we were heading out to dinner and at that moment, my brother realized he'd forgotten pants. So he asked if he could borrow a pair of pants and I gave him my favorite pair of jeans and we went to dinner and I remember as we were walking back, I looked and there was a huge rip in them and not a cool one, like an awkward, you ruined them, ripping my pants. And I was like, what have you done? He's like, I don't know. I was like, what do you mean you don't know? Take them off. And and we got to the end of what had become a very strange trip. But the next morning, we were excited. We're about to go whitewater rafting together. It's very cool. And so I remember we got in this boat and it was like three of us guys got in with this guide and it didn't take very long down the river before he looked at me and my brother and his friend and was like, hey, you guys seem to know what you're doing out here. And we're like, yeah, what's up, man? Yeah, he was like, hey, do y'all wanna go on some harder rapids? What are you gonna say, no? We were like, of course, man, give us all you got. And then he gets amped. He's like, dude, I never get to do this. It's gonna be crazy. And then he looks up at me and he was like, hey man, when we hit that white water, I'm looking at you and I'm gonna tell you like stroke two and you gotta dig in deep. Everyone's gonna be keying off of you. You got this? I was like, I got you. And he's like, all right. So he's getting ready. And I remember as soon as we hit these rapids, he yells stroke two. And as soon as he does, it feels like someone's lit a fire in my shorts. So he yells, stroke two, right when I yell, it burns. And so we hit the rapids. I throw my oar down and start scooping water into my lap. And he's like, what are you doing? I'm like, make it stop. And we went into the rapids sideways. It was chaos. He was very upset with me. No complimentary photo afterwards. (laughs) But I remember as I was changing, uh, uh, I, I took the wetsuit off and my shorts were frayed like the Incredible Hulk. I was like, man, what is going on? And, and then finally, it, it struck me. I looked at my brother and I said, hey, man, will you pop the trunk of your car? And he did, and sure enough, there was an old car battery in the back. And battery acid had leaked into my bag. Now, if that's never happened to you before, um, <laughs> ba- battery acid doesn't necessarily eat uh, all the clothes. What it does is, is it soaks into every fiber and weakens it. 
so that over the course of the next several days, as I would button a shirt, a chunk would rip off. As I would pull on socks, I'd rip the top off. Because this substance had soaked every fiber and weakened them so that when it was time for them to move, they disintegrated. Now, why do I mention that? Because I think there are forces today that have soaked into our mentality as a culture that have weakened every fiber, and we are disintegrating in our relationship with God, in our relationship to ourselves, in our relationship to other people, and it's a problem. Uh, Sun Tzu wrote the book Art of War centuries ago about the seminal book on warfare. And, and what's interesting about the Art of War is, is there's very little about what happens in the actual battlefield. Much of the book is about how to defeat your enemy before you even line up at the battle lines. And, and one of the pieces of information he says is, man, when you're working against a kingdom with superior power, what you have to do is, one, you want to distract them, so allure them with sexual activity or with treasure, and then you want to send spies among the camp to sow disinformation, to breed distrust, and so that as there's distrust, they will disintegrate within their own kingdom, and so they'll be weakened when the time of battle comes, they're not ready. And what's fascinating was he wrote that centuries ago, but I was talking with leaders in D.C. where I live now, and uh, that playbook has been run by Russia against the United States. You know, over the last few years, they was like, yeah, that's what we're going to do. Let's flood the internet with all kinds of disinformation to distort your view of reality. And what's interesting is, even among Russian troll farms, they, they found that they were actually organizing events that took place in America during our election cycle. And some of those events were, were right-wing events, and some of them were left-wing events. And what was interesting is the FBI agent who was interviewed by Congress said, well, wait a minute, they were, they were organizing left and right-wing events? What, what side were they trying to win? And the FBI agent said, no, they weren't picking a side. They just wanted to make us tear each other apart. The goal was disinformation to breed distrust so we'll disintegrate. Why, why size up against us if I can get you to destroy yourself? Now, here's the interesting thing is, I'm actually not that worried about Russia right now. I can't solve anything with that. And I'm not really worried about what they're saying to you politically. But what, what's interesting to me is before Russia ran this play, before Sun Tzu ran this play, the devils run this play. You look at Genesis chapter three and what's he doing? Distrust. Did God really say, Eve, hey, hey Eve, just I'm making an observation. It seems like the God that you worship is holding out on you. It seems like your allegiance to him is costing you some experiences, Eve. I don't know, but something about it says that he's trying to steal real life from you. And he begins to sow distrust so she will disintegrate from God. And then once he separated us from the head, what's Genesis chapter four? God warns Cain, sin is crouching at your door. It wants to devour you. But rather than make war on sin, Cain makes war on his brother and he kills him. And I look at our culture today and I think there are forces that are calling us to disintegrate from God and disintegrate from each other. Why take you head on? I don't have to. I just get you to tear yourself apart. And my concern is for us in the middle of a culture, a country, a society that distrusts each other and is disintegrating, we're ripping apart at the seams. My question that I'm burdened with is, does the church have an answer? What do we say? Does our message have any bearing on a culture in crisis? Because I can't fix America, and we don't need to pontificate about that, but I'm very concerned about who is the church in the middle of a difficult day. 
And what I love about this passage in Ephesians is Paul is gonna show us, hey, there's the problem and here's the depths underneath our problem. But then he's gonna lead us to the great physician and to see the answer. And the answer is not something you do. What Paul is gonna show us is what Christ has done. As he's watched the enemy rip apart his people, Christ comes to act decisively. And we're gonna get to see the movement of Christ, how he handled the unraveling individually and how he handled it corporately. And then we're gonna see how we participate in it. Sound good? So it's a lot of scripture and we won't necessarily get into the details of all of it, but I wanna fly over what he's done and he starts with how he's helped you individually. And you see in Ephesians 2, it starts with, and you were dead. That Paul looks at our dislocation from God as human beings and he said, we've been so severed from the author of life that when he tries to find a metaphor for it, he goes to the morgue. You are so distant from God, the best description of your spiritual state is a graveyard. And he says, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, trespass means you went someplace you were never meant to go. And sin means you became something you were never meant to be. The Bible says all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God made us to be something glorious, but there's something wrong with us. I'm in spiritual conversations all the time with people, and you say, how? Like, because I'm a pastor. People ask, what do you do for a living? I say, I'm a pastor, which either destroys the conversation immediately or they start asking questions. And you know what's fascinating? As I tell all of them, though you're beautiful in the image of God, you're desperately broken and no one ever disagrees. They're not like, well, man, I don't know. I mean, let me push back on that. I see skies of blue and clouds of white. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. No one says that. <laughs> I say, we're all broken. They're like, right? And they start giving me examples. And I say, and you're broken. And no one pushes back on that. They say, you're right. I don't even understand what I do. We all know something's wrong with us, but we sometimes misdiagnose the need. Maybe I just need to lose a little weight. Maybe gain a little weight. Maybe read a self-help book. And Paul says, no, man, if you were, like got an upset tummy, you need Tums. If you got a broken leg, you need surgery. If you're dead, you need a miracle. And the problem's deeper. The disintegration is further. You're not alive. In which you walked following the course of the world. He said there's, there's a social element to our sin. There's a sense of when you get all sinners together, more sin begins to mix into each other and integrate and bump into very ugly ways. Whenever you look historically at genocides, People perpetrate enormous evil, exterminating millions of people, like in Nazi Germany. Afterwards, in the interviews of people that were just normal people who, in various ways, participated, they would ask them, how could you participate in something you knew was morally wrong? And over and over again, the reports come back, because everyone was doing it. You've all read about the Ash Conformity Experiment, where they did tests on college students. They would show them pictures. Which line is the longest, A, B, or C? And A was clearly the right answer. But the trick on the test was that everyone was in on it in the room except one kid. And so everyone in the room would clearly pick a shorter one. And you'd watch these kids, if you've never watched the videos, look around like, what? No, it's A, a right guys? Right, right guys? Nobody? And over time, as that consistently happened, you'd watch them slump in their chair and look down, look exhausted, until finally 75% of them would give answers they knew were wrong. Which circle's red? I don't know, blue one. The push of peer pressure so strong, some good self-wisdom you could have is knowing how it gets used. We followed the prince of the power of the air. There's a spiritual element to it. 
I read two books a few years ago, people who came to believe in God, not because they contemplated the beauty of the world, but because they saw the darkness in it. And it was more than just biology to them. There's something dehumanizing us that lets us be so inhumane to each other. And then there's a personal element. Among whom we all lived with the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, that's the impulse. I wanted to see that, so I clicked on it. I wanted to touch that, so I did it. It's the impulse. And the desires of the mind, I thought about it. I knew that would hurt that person's feelings, and I posted it anyway. Some of it's impulsive, some of it's deliberate, but all of it is death, and we are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. God is furious when he sees what we've done with the world, and I don't blame him. And, you know, in centuries in the past, or centuries years ago, I remember it was, it was kind of awkward to talk about wrath. I think people get wrath now. It's the proper response to injustice. Like, I remember for me when I was a little kid going with my father to visit my grandma in the hospital and uh, or in this nursing home, rather, and, and we showed up and we heard screaming when we walked through the doors. And I remember when we turned the corner, we saw the screaming was coming from my grandmother. They had tied her to a chair in the hallway and left her. And she was slumped down and she was screaming, it hurts. I'll never forget as a young man looking at my father, who was a gentle man, never yelled. But I looked at his face and I saw his arms and I saw wrath. I saw fury in that man because you had one job, take care of her. And you didn't do it. You did the opposite of that. And who are you mad at? The person who tied her to the chair or all the people who walked down the hall in indifference? Both. And God looks down at the earth he gave us. Can you imagine if you had an estate to hand to people and they abused a third of them and misused the funds? You'd be furious. And God looks at the world and said, man, I called you to love each other and look what you've done to each other. And he's furious at it. And we're all children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And I know some of us in here say, Ben, I'm not that bad. And let me tell you something. There's three dead people that Jesus raised from the dead in the Gospels. Jairus' daughter that had died minutes before Jesus arrived. The young man who Jesus stopped his funeral, literally stopped the funeral beer and raised him from the dead. And Lazarus, who Jesus waited for days before he raised him from the dead. All three of them. He raised from the dead. The little girl probably looked like she was sleeping, probably still warm. She had just been dead for minutes. Young man had probably been dead a day. Body was probably already stiff. Lazarus had been in the tomb for days. So when Jesus showed up, he said, roll the stone away. Mary and Martha went, whoa, 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 Jesus. Hey, uh, he's gonna stink. That's the stench of decomposition. But here's the interesting thing. All three of them, very different. Warm, little stiff, stench. But what did they have in common? They're all dead. It wasn't that he was all dead and she was mostly dead. No, they're all dead. Just the manifestation of that death looked different. Some of us may say, man, I'm not as bad as that guy. I don't stink like that person. You're right, but you're still dead. Like the rest of humanity. We're all in a difficult place. And unless God does something about it, we can't get out. I've told this story a lot in here, but it bears repeating. When I was a child, my grandmother had a pool in her backyard that years before had been emptied of water, emptied of pool water. Over the course of years, it had filled with rainwater 
and trees had fallen in it, grass, and there were snakes in there and frogs. And when you're a little kid with a vivid imagination, all things evil in the world. So if you have a grandma with a pool of evil in the backyard, what do you do? You play on the edge of it. That's what my brother and I would do. We'd just go walk on the edge. And we're like, I can't even stand it. All right, walk along. Until one day I slipped and I fell in. And at that moment, it dawned on me immediately. I have to get out of this situation. So I waded over to the shallow end. I began to run as fast as I could. And I went for the leap to try to get myself out. I didn't come close. I don't know who dug out that pool, but he was motivated. <laughs> I remember I looked up at my brother, who was just a year older than me, and I'm like, Ugh. and he's like, Ugh. and I'm like, ah, because I realized I can't get out and he can't help me. So I did the only thing that was available to me at the time. I started crying. And I remember as a little five-year-old, I'm crying in a pretty terrifying place to me. And as I'm doing that, I look to the fence and I see a guy that's maybe college age, and I see him right as he hears me crying. And I watch him drop whatever gardening tool he had. And he just started to run. And I remember when he got to that fence, he just leapt it all in one move. It was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. And we're all like, oh, okay, that was amazing. <laughs> and he dove into that pool with me. And he drew me out. It's one of my clearest memories as a child. I remember being a little kid, him leaning over and looking into my face and saying, are you okay, son? And I couldn't answer him. I was awestruck by the one who would dive into my chaos to set me free. And Paul here says, you were dead, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, not because of what you did, but because of what is housed in him. Because of that great love, even when you were dead, he made you alive with Christ. By grace, you've been saved, and he raised us with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. The Bible is not about making bad people good. It's about making dead people alive. That Jesus Christ united you in his love. He saw the disintegration of our relationship with God and Jesus Christ reweaved that relationship. How did he do it? Because there's a vertical beam to this cross. He took down the thread of love and said, I'm binding you with me. That's what's so great about the language. Did you notice three times with him, with him, with him, you were dead, dead, dead in Adam, but you are now raised with me and seated with me, alive with me, knit together with Christ. You have a future and a hope in him because it's by grace, his kindness and compassion, you've been rescued not a result of work so that nobody can boast. This is our great message. This is the hope of the world, that we've been rescued by a God who has united us with his love, not because of what you've done, but because of what he did, so that in the ages to come, we can be a trophy of his grace, the kind of love that could change you from the inside out and make you, in verse 10, his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared for you beforehand that you would walk in him. In an anxious and fractured day, he has made you something new. There's a dignity and a stability to this. It's fascinating. Uh, Michelangelo's David, you know, it's one of the most famous statues in the world. Uh, and uh, if you've never gone to see it, you'll, you'll wait for hours in line with people from around the world 
to go into a museum that really doesn't have much else except David. The whole, the whole museum was built for that statue. But what most people don't know is that statue was initially a discarded stone. Many other uh, artists had passed it by. And then Michelangelo chose it, carved it, and made one of the greatest masterpieces humanity's ever produced. It's insane. If you've never looked at it, you expect this marble to move. It's so lifelike. Now, if stone could think, it would be dumb for David to stand up there and think, I'm just a discarded stone. So many have passed over me because I'm flawed deep inside. You'd say, yeah, all that's true. But then the master put his hand on you and he's made you something else. But it'd be equally stupid for David to stand there and say, I am David. (laughs) Drink it in. I carved myself out of that stone. I chiseled these abs. You'd say, whoa, 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 whoa. Now, you are impressive, but you didn't do that. You're something beautiful because the master put his hands to you. Do you see the beauty of the gospel? It makes us humble and confident at the same time. That you can come and say, man, I am something great. You're not destined by your flaws. They don't have to determine your future. You've been made something else. Why? Because the master knit you together with him. You are something else. You've been united with him in love. Do you see it? And he set out your itinerary that we would now step into good works that he's prepared for us. Now, most people when they preach stop here because 10 verses is a lot and that's a good place to stop. Paul doesn't, and so we don't either. Paul goes from from what's a really good landing point. You're a masterpiece, and bring out the band, and we sing about how a masterpiece I am. Paul goes back down and says, therefore, in light of this, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, Gentiles, the word ethnos, it's it's the non-Jewish people in the audience. He looks at everyone from the nations that are diverse ethnically, and he brings up a source of tension. He says, therefore, remember that one time you Gentiles in the flesh, and not just a source of tension, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. Now, that's awkward. Why does he bring up whether or not you're circumcised? That's weird. And who would call you that? Well, for the Jewish people, circumcision was a sign of a covenant with God, that God has bound himself with us. And They were meant to be a kingdom of priests, helping other people know the God who had chosen them by his grace. But rather than using that graceful position to love others, they were using it to lord over others. And he says, so they're looking at you and calling you the uncircumcision, meaning God doesn't like you as much because of the nature of your ethnicity. It's a racial slur. And it's got cultural baggage and religious baggage. And Paul brings up a really awkward subject. This this one's great. This is getting weird. The gospel gets me to heaven, but we're ripping each other apart. We're not just disintegrated here. We're disintegrated here. And does the Bible have anything to say about how we're culturally ripping each other apart? Because there's all kinds of issues brought up here. 
And Paul keeps pressing on him and keeps making it weird. Remember that you were separated from Christ. You had no messianic hope, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. There's some national issues here. Strangers to the covenant is a promise. You didn't even know the words of God. And so you had no hope of a future and without God in the world. He's bringing up all these tensions that for the Jewish people, Gentile was, was, was an oppressor. I mean, through their whole life, from, back from Pharaoh to Babylon to Persia to Rome. So there were religious implications, but political implications, social implications, religious implications, ethnic ones, all kinds of barriers. I know it's hard to imagine a a time in history where people were divided along all these lines. Just try to imagine by faith. Do we have a message that has anything to say here? But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near. By the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. This isn't internal peace. It's talking about us. He's our peace. How? Because he broke down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments, expressing ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross there by killing the hostility. That's the power of the cross. I love the way my friend Derwin Gray says that the cross has a vertical beam that I can be reconciled to God and it has a horizontal beam that I can be reconciled to you. The cross is so powerful. It can make dead people alive and the cross is so powerful. It can turn former hostility into family. That's the power of the cross, that we can be united with God in love and we can be united with each other in love. The cross of Jesus Christ is sufficient to make the dead alive and to make enemies into family. It's that powerful. How did he do it? Through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. That in the old Jewish temple, there was a wall. Jews could come towards the Holy of Holies into the inner sanctum. Gentiles could not. But he says, Christ didn't just reconcile us to God. He broke down that wall, made the two one, and now we're reconciled together as one body because of his cross. There's level ground at the foot of the cross. I remember for me, when I first started as a pastor right out of college, I I was involved in a church that did communion where everyone comes down front and and you'd get break off a piece of the bread and you'd dip it in the juice, and then eat it. I had never been a part of a church. I wasn't part of the ones that handed out little individual cups of the body of Christ and blood of Christ, and you would sort of not look at anyone else or make eye contact. Like, I'm having a moment with my individually wrapped body of Christ, blood of Christ. Y'all stay over there. And so it was the first time it was like this communal thing. I thought it was weird at first. I wasn't sure. And actually, I don't know if we'll ever go back to sharing bread again. Not up in D.C. Spook people. But back there, I remember staying up there. My job was to hold the bread and say the body of Christ was broken for you. The body of Christ was broken for you. That was my job. And someone else said the blood of Christ was shed for you. I remember doing that, and I remember this, this old man coming down front. This old man had done a lot of impressive things. I knew his story, but he still needed this. I told him the body of Christ had been broken for you, brother. Then I remember this little girl walking up. I had to kneel down. I was like, and the body of Christ was broken for you. I watched this sweet old Hispanic grandma come up. I said, the body of Christ is broken for you. I saw a strong young black man come up. The body of Christ is broken for you. And I stood there and I was getting overwhelmed by it. I'm like, is, is there something sufficient 
to unite us together in a divided day? Can something reweave the fabric that's being disintegrated in society? Yes, it's not something new, it's something old. It worked back then, it works now. That the cross kills the hostility, that we can be united in love with him and united in love with each other. That's the possibility open to us. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father, which is beautiful, but not easy. So chapter three, Paul takes an aside and talks about how God called him to the Gentiles. And then he gets back on track because he said, hey, I've been called you to, to walk in these good works that he called you to walk in. And he picks that up in chapter four, verse one. He says, I therefore, as a prisoner, urge you, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. He says, man, now that God has reconciled you to himself, I want you to walk in good works. And he says, what are they? He said, well, he's taking people who are very different. And I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. What is that? I want you to bear with, each, with one another. In the Greek, that means put up with each other. Would you think he would say something more impressive? Christ bled out a drops of blood, so go to the nations. Now, what does he say? Christ bled out for you, so what? So, so put up with each other, just put up with each other. Be gentle, be patient, bear with each other, because you'll misunderstand each other constantly. But be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Does that describe you at all? We put your social media up on the screen. Would it look like eagerness to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace? There's a lot of motivations in the world to tear us apart, and there's real issues and real division, but we have the possibility of being woven together to bear with one another in love. Why? Because we have the inexhaustible resource of God's love in us. My wife and I love each other, and it's pretty amazing that you can love somebody and, and you build this family that didn't exist before, and, and that that the outworking of that love can actually produce people. Don't go too deep into the metaphor, but it's pretty fun. So, but you look, and when you bring these humans into the world, you're like, we built this relationship, and you are a product of our love for each other. That's so crazy. And I remember when my daughter Sparrow was born, the instant she was born, she was ours, mine, forever loved by me. But she was also instantly sister to Hannah. And one of the greatest hopes as parents that we plead with them is get along. <laughs> Let this love transfer here, not just here, but here. I want it to move amongst each other. Can we do that? Is it possible to be united with him in love? and united with each other, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, that what the spirit procured, we preserve. What Christ purchased, we preserve. We fight for this unity because the world needs to see it. And let me tell you something, if I can get in your business a little bit today, if you're millennial or Gen Z, statistically speaking, depending on how the question's asked, somewhere between 25 to 35% of your generations say they are unaffiliated with any religion. Yet interestingly, in the same surveys, when they're asked, how often do you pray and do you believe in heaven, hell, and miracles, the same number roughly as previous generations indicate that they do. It's confusing. 
So wait a minute, you're, you're less religious, but you roughly believe the same things and pray about the same amount of time? What's the difference? Well, the difference is that word unaffiliated. It means not part of a group. And what you see happening a lot in the world today is, is not that I'm less interested in spirituality or less pursuing of spirituality. It's just that I'm less interested in the affiliations with other people. Uh, Dr. Jean Twenge did a study on, on your generations and has found that where a sense of individualism is high, the prioritizing of self, religious involvement is low because it involves commitment to a group. So you see the rise of this language, I'm spiritual, but not religious. What does it mean? It means I want to acknowledge there's a spiritual world. I believe there's more than just biology. I want to be a part of something out there, but I don't want the hassle of you. And so you see, it's not an anti-spiritual movement in your generation. It's anti-social. It's I want to love God, but I don't want the hassle of you people. And listen, I'm not giving you a hard time because this is a trend in America you were born up to. The number of people that you can call in a crisis has been decreasing in America since the 1950s. So you're part of an antisocial movement that's been happening in America for a long time, right? As our square footage of our homes has grown, the square footage of our friendship groups have shrunk. And a lot of that is because of these phones and you didn't make them. They were put in your hand as babies. But the more we're brought onto this, you see a marked decrease in empathy in your generations because I can be rude to you and not have to look at the pain in your face. And so there's an antisocial movement in society. But it's interesting, Huffington Post, which is by no means a conservative or religious publication, released a study by UCLA, which is in no way a religious institution, but they studied college students, your generation, over 200 universities, and they were looking for what are the major trends in college students over the decades. And do you know what they found the major trends are? College students are less religious, not surprising, we just said that. It says, but college students are also more lonely, depressed, and stressed than any generation previously by a wide margin. And so the third trend they're seeing is they need to offer more drug treatment because addiction is an intimacy disorder. If I can't find my needs met with another human being, then I go to try to regulate my chemicals with a substance. And there's an increasing amount of responsibility for colleges to try to police sexual violence. As you see among your generation, there's been not a lack of interest in spirituality, but a weeping, weakening of the fabric socially. And what's it done? You've all seen that study. Every pastor's quoted it, so let me just get it out of the way. They did a study recently in Barna, right? Across America throughout the pandemic, everyone's mental health went down, right? except one group, those who went to church on a weekly basis. Not every now and again, weekly. Said, I'm gonna prioritize what Christ purchased. I'm united with him, so I'm united with us. And what the statistics are showing us is what Genesis says is haunting. It's not good for a man to be alone. And one of the greatest gifts God has given us is us. I'm united with him. And then he says, but I didn't stop there. I also united you with us. So be eager to maintain this bond of unity and the uh, bond of the spirit in peace because it's difficult, but it's worth it and you need it. So let me give you two implications before we close. Because some of you are like, Ben, why would I bother? Like, why do I want to fight for this? Why do I want to fight for unity? Like, like, I have my friendship group. All I need is a couple buddies and some podcasts and some books, and I'm good. Well, Jesus here is talking about I made strangers and enemies into family. Why? Because the unity of diversity brings glory. It does. I'll give you a simple example. If I came to you and said, hey, man, you got to listen to this song. And you said, why? And I was like, dude, it is a hit 
among 13-year-old white girls. They love it. You probably don't care. Yeah, dude, I don't want to hear that song. But if I said to you, dude, you're going to hear this song. You're like, why? And I was like, because this is the number one song in every country on planet Earth. Across age, demographics, socioeconomic boundaries, this song is the number one song in the minds and hearts of people from all different ethnicities and ages and socioeconomic backgrounds all across the planet, all keying off this song. You'd go, play me the song. What could possibly unite people like that? The unity of diversity brings glory. I gotta hear it. If I said, try this restaurant, it's a hit with the over 75 set. I mean, the grandparents love it. You're probably not gonna go. But if I say everyone wants to go there, you wanna know what they're serving. The unity of diversity brings glory. It is no great glory for you to love your friends. That's what Jesus said. He said, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. He said, you love your friends? Even the sinners do that. Even Hitler probably had friends. I love my friends. Who cares? But people see the glory of God when they see people across boundaries, when they see love explode past the expected banks, it brings glory. When they walk into a church building and they see you all here and say, hey, there's old people here and young people here. Hey, there's black, white, Hispanic, Asian, Latino. Everybody's here. What could do that? There's only two entities in America, the Department of Motor Vehicles, And there's something to it. Everyone knows they're guilty. Yeah, yeah. We all stand condemned. And the church of Jesus Christ. And this one's way more fun. That people are meant to walk in among us and say, what can do this? What could unite a people like this? What could do this? And we say the cross is that powerful. That it not only brings the dead to life, it makes former enemies. It makes them family. So we do it for his glory and we do it for his good. We do it for our good, that we need us. It's, it's interesting, man, because you all believe this anyway. I mean, you look in like the Iron Man movie made maybe $300 million. The Avengers made multiple billion, with a B, billion dollars, right? Why? Because we wanna see people who are formerly disparate come together to solve a problem, right? How many times have you watched that movie? Over and over again. Lord of the Rings and the Avengers and Justice League, not as good, but you, we go to those movies all the time. I wanna see people who have no business getting along and don't really like each other suddenly have a purpose bigger than themselves that they have to unite about and they overcome their differences and found that our unity doesn't actually detract from me. Actually, as I work through our differences, it enriches me because I get to be a part of bigger, something bigger than myself. And we go, yes, that's right. That is just stealing a little piece of what Jesus is doing. We're like, man, I don't wanna do that because I don't get along with that guy. I don't understand him. You want this. You're built for this. It's for God's glory and it's for your good. I love it. We didn't get a chance to read it, but he says, when we speak the truth to one another in love, we will in all things grow into the head. That as we lean into preserving this unity and speak the truth to each other, you grow. This is for your good. It's interesting. Match.com is it, you know, an old school dating site and and, and, you know, they developed an algorithm of you punch in the characteristics that you like and uh, we'll spit out your first date and, and, and you guys should get married. You're a match. And they found that it, like, never worked. Like, people barely ever made it out of the first date. And so they hired a guy to understand what's wrong with our algorithm. Why does our algorithm work? And what they found was there's nothing wrong with the algorithm. The problem is people. What they say they want 
and who they marry are so wildly disparate, there's no correlation. And it's funny when I talk to people that are like, well, Ben, I don't need to go to church. I, I, I got my friends, my podcast, my books. That betrays the assumption that you actually know what you want and you don't. But the spirit apportions gifts for the common good. He scattered them among an us and you need an us. I had no idea when I was 20 how selfish I was until I got involved at a church and started serving among junior high kids. And I would speak and they're not listening. And I'm like, why are you not listening to this? This is good. Like, why are you not? Other people want to hear this. I don't need this. I don't need y'all. I don't need this. And I just, and I realized I'm so selfish. I had no idea. But I'll never forget the day one of them walked into the church early and asked, how you doing, man? He was like, fine. But I knew his parents had just divorced. And I knew he was helping dad move into his apartment that weekend. And I asked, how was that? He said, it was fine. And I don't normally talk like this to middle school kids, but I was like, hey man, like, I know you're gonna be fine, but it sucks. It's okay to say it sucks. And he just started crying. It fell into my chest and I was holding this kid and, and, and instantly when I was holding him, I thought about all the time it costs me to volunteer among these children. But I just thought, but there's nothing else I'd rather do with my life. And I sat there and I was like, I would have never at 23 knelt down in my bedroom and thought, God, will you just send me some middle school age boys <laughs> to make me in your image? I would have never asked for that. Would have never crossed my mind but he wove us together for my good. I had no idea I was a dwarf in prayer till I joined a church where there were old ladies that would just easily pray all night for somebody else. Never experienced that. I moved to a church in the inner city of Denver and lived in it, this wildly diverse church ethnically. And so there's all these issues that come up as cultures rub against each other. But I watched a church not be scared of that, but just like Paul, be, be willing to bring it up and listen and care for each other. It was the most beautiful picture of, look what's possible in this place. It, it was an old grocery store that closed down and left the neighborhood because the store decided it's not worth being in this neighborhood. It got robbed too much. And so the church moved in and they used to laugh about it. Several of us that used to rob this church are now ministering to the neighborhood in Jesus' name in the same building. And I remember being in that church and the front desk was manned by two people who were the best of friends, like little peas in a pod. One was this little bitty old white lady and one was a big, tall Hispanic man. And she was old, so she was frail, but he was so gentle with her, helping her around. And he had come out of a rough lifestyle and had some illnesses of his own she would mother him and remind him to take his pills and all this. And you would just watch the way they would talk to each other. And you were like, it's beautiful that God gave them to each other. And I promise you, she never knelt down in her old folks home or wherever she lived and just said, Lord, I just, I need a huge Hispanic <laughs> former gang member in this last chapter of my life. And I guarantee you he was never in his room going like, Lord, I need a white grandma. <laughs> he wasn't asking. And let me warn you something. If I was the enemy and want to destroy you, what would I do? I would make you not prioritize being among us. 
I'd sow disinformation, distrust. Take real problems, but exacerbate them. Take those threads and pick at them and pick at them and pick at them. Keep you apart from each other so you can't hear each other's hearts. You only hear the language. Throw volleys of hate on a phone. Get, get this in between your relationships. Make it a dividing wall of hostility. And disintegrate the church so that when the world is in the darkness, we're already powerless before the fight starts. And I want to warn you, Jesus Christ is reweaving a connection between heaven and earth through his cross. And he's reweaving a connection between us by his cross. And I haven't given you much by the way of application of how to do this. But if we bear with one another with gentleness and humility and patience, we're not just built into individual Davids. He said, you're being built together into a temple of the Holy Spirit. The world will see something it desperately needs. Robert Woodbury did a study on the missionary roots of liberal democracy published in a scientific journal. He wanted to understand the impact of missionaries on developing nations. So he did a study over years and he said what he found struck him like an atomic bomb. He said that we found that missionaries, when they entered economically developing nations, he said wherever Protestant missionaries had a significant presence, those nations are more economically developed, have comparatively better health, have lower infant mortality, have lower corruption, have greater literacy, have higher educational attainment, especially for women, and more robust membership and service. And he said, to be clear, there were some racist missionaries and self-centered missionaries, but if that was the norm, you would expect to see those negative effects be the average, but the opposite was in place. He said, wherever you saw missionaries come, you saw a culture elevate. But then he makes the important distinction. When I say missionary, I'm talking about conversionary Protestants which is the title he made up. But he was trying to explain conversionary means they're people who understand you need to be converted. You were dead and need to be made alive. And Protestant meaning they believe this book is the word of God that tells you about a Jesus Christ who came for you to reweave the fabric of a broken society so that you would love God and love each other. He said that message, when it lands in a culture, doesn't just change individuals, it actually changes cultures and changes nations. And then this is what he wrote in his conclusion. He said, that these missionaries, he said they imposed unjust and destructive practices like opium addiction and slavery and land confiscation, but they didn't set out to be political activists. All this reform came through the back door. All these positive outcomes were somewhat unintended, which by saying he completely misreads the gospel because Jesus says when you make the tree good, the fruit will be good. He said, it's the weirdest thing. People are coming to Christ and nations are rising, but they didn't set out to change nations. They set out to change people. Isn't that weird? And we say, no, not at all, Robert. When we reweave the broken fabric between God and humanity, he says, this isn't the only fabric of love I'm weaving. I wanna weave it across every human boundary too so that when you love each other, cities change, churches change, cultures change, society changes. It's possible. We're not too far gone. I have great hope for America. I have great hope for our nation. I have great hope for your generation, but not because you're so great, but because he is. So make that decision. I'm gonna press into us, not a hypothetical spirituality, but a deep, robust community that as we rub up against each other, the world sees love. They see you at churches. They see you in places like this. And they say, surely God is in their midst because nothing else makes sense. 
and the light of the world will shine in the darkness through us. Lord, let it be. So God, thank you that while we were a long way off, you came for us. And God, I know there's some people in here that have never put their faith in Jesus. And I pray that first part of the sermon would would be for them, that they would say, no, I know what I am. I know I'm dead. And I keep trying to turn over a new leaf, but I need to be resurrected. And thank you, God, that you sent Christ, that he can renovate hearts from the inside out. And Lord, I pray there might be some men and women here even tonight that say, I want you. If you're rescuing, rescue me. If you're reweaving the severed fabric between heaven and earth, weave me in. You tell him that tonight, friend, and then please tell one of us. And then God, for those of us who know you, it's not shocking to watch a culture divide along very common lines. All throughout human stories, we have divided across cultures. Decrited on socioeconomic boundaries, political boundaries, ethnic boundaries, we divide. But God, you have done something about that too. The cross is so powerful. It not only brings the dead to life, it makes enemies into family. So I pray, God, in the midst of a culture that's divided, might they see us speak the truth to each other, not hide it, not bury it, but speak it in love, with gentleness and humility, with patience, bearing with one another, eager to maintain that unity. And I pray, God, radiating out of our churches and towns all across this country, people would see, surely God is in their midst. What could create a healing like that? What kind of balm? could heal the wounds of a nation like that. God, I pray the glory of all that you purchased on the cross would be manifest through the unity we persevere and maintain together. Knit us together for your glory. Knit us together for our good. And may our cities be different because we exist. May this generation be different because we dare to believe this truth. I want to invite you just to ask him, what would it look like for me, God, to forgive someone who hurt me, to reach out to someone I've avoided, to pray for somebody that I secretly just want to see fall? What if I prayed and asked God to bless him? To not give up when people are a hassle? To press in with a question rather than attack with a statement? Ask him to give you a vision of what it might look like to be the church to each other. Let it be with